thank you for being here today. This is uh, wild, and it's kind of funny looking across at you guys, realizing that we've got probably about twice as many of you in the kids' area, um, which is scary and daunting. Um, um, the, kids, the kids outnumber us to such a degree, but what, what can you do? Um, so if you would uh, turn to Colossians 1, the way I'd like to, uh, to begin uh, today, and really at, at the start of Risen Hope, is I wanted to start at the beginning with you. And uh, I want to start at the beginning of this church, obviously, uh, but I want to start at the beginning, really, of everything, um, because that beginning is God. And um, it's who he is and what he's done. And I want to simply just bear witness uh, with you of this simple fact, and it's that I'm here today, and uh, you are here, everyone who's here and everyone who will hear my voice, hears my voice and is here because God decided that that would be a good idea. Um, he has brought us here. It's not an accident you were here. And uh, while it was your decision, probably, and uh, maybe that's not true about everybody. Maybe some of you guys were, were drugged here, drugged and dragged. Uh, um, but ultimately, you're here because it was his decision first. It pleased God to bring you here, and so I want to, I'm just praying that the weight of that reality um, isn't lost on us, that it's His design that we hear today's Word. Um, and uh, we're going to be spending the next few months going through the book of Colossians, and um, the book of Colossians is special because uh, the, one of the reasons why I think it's pertinent for the beginning of this church is that we get a very clear presentation of the risen hope, the hope that is before us in the person of Jesus Christ. And um, there are other books of the Bible that, that really uh, put out the uh, picture and the image of Christ, but very few of them do with such clarity that the book of Colossians. So however long God is pleased to have us meet and go through this book, um, my hope is that today and that as we go through this uh, book of the Bible that we set a really firm foundation and a, a, a healthy framework for um, what we're all about here. Um, so let's read Colossians 1. We're going to read uh, Colossians 1, verse 1 through the beginning of verse 5, and then we'll talk about it. All right. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Let's pray. Father God, you are gracious and powerful. And those two combinations, in the way that you present them, in the reality of who you are, are astounding. Um, that you are omnipotent in all that you do and sovereign in all that you do, yet you still are gracious and loving to weak, broken, sinful people like us. I pray that our time together, Father, is sanctified and blessed by you. I pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts, my eyes and everyone's eyes that hears my voice, um, that your name would be glorified and exalted and that you would be made much of so that we could see your truth, embrace it, and love it for its objective worth, how beautiful you really are. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. <laughs> At the start, I want to say a word really briefly about preaching. I feel 
zero need to rush through our time in the Bible or to tackle specific issues in a timely fashion. So as a church, I just want to lay out before you, and hopefully this doesn't come as a disappointment, um, that one of the promises I feel confident about making right off the bat is that we are not going to win any speed awards for exposition. Um, we get, I get 30 to 40 minutes with you each week. And I plan on using, as much as God gives me, every single second of them to working with you and figuring out what this book is telling us. And um, I believe that God is calling Risen Hope specifically to a deeply rich exploration of Scripture. And I personally feel a zeal and passion for this, but what I want to do in our time together in, in these periods of time is really just saturate our hearts in the Word of God and see Him for who He is. Paul uh, says in Colossians 1.28, the goal of his ministry is to warn and to teach in such a way that everyone can be presented mature in Christ. Now, this kind of maturity isn't, uh, it's not just an intellectual maturity. It's not just knowing a bunch of facts. This maturity deals with affections and desires, deep parts about who we are, and it springs from our hearts. And so preaching uh, by one of my favorite pastors is referred to as expository exaltation. Expository meaning we're explaining what we see in the text, and exaltation meaning that this is not separate and distinct from what the Zemeks were doing earlier by leading us in worship or what Rachel was doing when we prayed. Preaching is an act of worship, and receiving preaching is an act of worship. <laughs> and um, I want to use this time to understand and enjoy this God that we're seeking out. So week after week, we, I plan on us going in and, and drawing full buckets from the fountain of living, uh, of living water, God, the knowledge of God, and the goal for me and the goal for us is to become mature in Christ and to see Jesus as we ought to see him. Colossians 3.1 says, Seek the things above where Christ is. And Paul's not referring to a location. He's referring to a reality. And so this is what it's going to look like week in and week out. So let me, uh, let's, let's start with uh, building a contextual framework for what we just read in Colossians. Paul is writing to the church in Colossae, which is located at the center of Asia Minor, and uh, he has yet, according to the rest of the book, seen many of these Christians face-to-face. -face. Most of these guys he hasn't seen at all. Um, and uh, some of them did hear, however, the gospel while he was at, most theologians believe, Ephesus. And so Epaphras, a man who's mentioned later on in this letter, is really a missionary to the Colossian people. And he starts a small community by bringing the gospel there of believers, and that's the church that Paul's writing to. And he's writing to them to encourage them to hold out this reality of Jesus Christ as being completely sufficient for everything that they need. Because the background of this letter is that there are people in this community, near this community in the Colossian church, that are trying to weave in Greek and Hebrew philosophy into the message of the gospel. And they're trying to, whether consciously or not, corrupt the free gift of salvation through Christ alone by melding it with uh, these other human traditions. And this is called syncretism. Now, we don't know a lot of the specifics here of what the details of this were, and I believe that's by God's design, that he's 
kept a very vague sort of understanding of what's going on in this church so that we have a broad framework by which we can, over the last 2,000 years as a Christian community or groups of communities, we can understand and discern and, and sort of figure out how this book might fit into our own context. Um, now, I don't want to get too much, too much deeper into the background, but you need to know what these Colossians knew as they get this letter, that people are telling them that Jesus is great, but he's not enough. He's not sufficient, and other things need to be added to Christ, and Paul will have none of it. So at the beginning, Paul presents himself in this letter, as he does in his other ones, by saying, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. What does that mean? Well, Paul is the author of this letter, and he's saying that Jesus Christ sent him to communicate this. That's what the word apostle means. He's not coming of his own accord. And if you know anything about Paul, the next thing, or at least his background, the next thing you should say is that's impossible. There's no way Paul, who according to Acts 9, who is breathing out murder against Christians, could ever be sent by the man these Christians were willing to die for. That is literally the most unlikely scenario possible. And yet we have passages like this in 1 Timothy uh, 1, where Paul says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. That is profound on about a thousand different levels. And Next week, we'll probably take a, look, a greater look at what he means by those because it deals with uh, next week's topic. But um, Paul is saying that he's been saved by Jesus Christ, and he is completely dedicated to his Savior. He has been appointed by, to the service of Christ as an apostle, and it wasn't his idea. That's the other factor that we have to look at here. Um, Paul, this violent persecutor of the church, that he would be an ambassador of the gospel of Jesus Christ is by the will of God. That means a few things that are huge. First, it means that God decided that he would rescue Paul. And it wasn't Paul that decided that. It wasn't anyone that decided it. It was God, who is also an eternal God, decided that he would rescue Paul. So let that sit on you for a second, that the God who created the universe, before the universe was created knew that he would rescue a person before they had ever committed a sin. And I hope that you can let that have its effect on you, that if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if your faith is in him, before you even said one word of rebellion against God, before you had one affection that defied the living God, God had already, from eternity past, set his sights on you. I want you to think about it from this perspective, that God's love for you never had a beginning. 
There was never a point when it started. So please let the weight of that land on you. What kind of commitment are we talking about that before you ever sinned, before the stars were ever in the sky, before there was ever any one ounce of rebellion from you that he had already initiated his plan to rescue you, um, if you let that sit on you for, for even just have a small amount of effect on you, that can change your life forever. Now, the fact that, that Paul is the author of this letter, by God's will, also means that when Paul writes to the Colossian church 2,000 years ago, it's really God who is writing this letter. God's will is being done in and through this letter. And we know this because later on in, in the next verse, he speaks on behalf of God. He says, grace to you and peace from who? From our God, our Father. And so Paul speaks for God. So right now, like I said earlier, your place right now in this building was determined beforehand by God because he wanted to bring you in contact by his grace with the realities of the word. He wanted to bring me in contact with it. So this letter, in a very real way, and I'm not trying to strip it from its historic context, but this letter, in, its very, in a very real way, is meant for us. God did not inspire Paul to write this letter without you and me and this day in mind. And so one of the central marks of Risen Hope is, is that we will take this book, because all of this book is defined by that very, very seriously, that God can use words written thousands of years ago to have a powerful impact on us. Um, and my prayer is that we would see this as a kind of book that we can read and study and memorize. And I would say that all of language is purpose, really, because our purpose is to know the living God, culminates in this book. We, we can understand words, and we have written language, because God thought it good to give us his own revelation of himself. Um, so, uh, something massive about this phrase that I want to key in on. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. This is just a sentence. It's a statement, really. And it's designed to convey an idea. But this statement is a summary of Paul's life and purpose. Think about it for a second. He's listed everything that matters, ultimately. Um, he is providing the Colossians with his purpose in the world, his design in the world by God. And so my question for you is this. Do you have a sentence like that for your life? Do you have something that sums up your life ultimately, like why you exist, why God puts you here? Um, and, and I want you to keep in mind, he's not thinking of any earthly realities. He's not thinking of uh, his job. He's not thinking of his skill set or his talent. He's not even thinking of his family or friends when he writes this. Because all of those things can be taken away from us in a moment. But the things that he writes to the Colossian church here can never be taken away from him, even when he's dead. Um, at the beginning of this year, uh, I, had, uh, I felt compelled, really, to pray and to ask God for this kind of, a, like a rudder for a ship or a ballast for a ship for my life. I wanted to uh, be able to get to the end of my life by God's grace and reflect upon it and survey really what I did. And um, I wanted to be able to say, did I answer that question? Did I accomplish the purpose for my life? And part of the reason why Risen Hope is here, I mean, 
a small part, there are lots of reasons sitting in chairs right now that Risen Hope is here. Uh, but part of the reason that Risen Hope exists is because <laughs> I felt a desperate need to make sure that every day of my life reflected an answer to the question of what I am here for. What is my purpose, ultimately? Not what is my purpose for my family who I love and would die for. What is my purpose, period? Um, and so I would commend it to all of you guys uh, that you pray to God for a sentence, one sentence that would sum up your life like Paul's. What is your purpose? And, and do it without considering any earthly component. Um, what has God ultimately made you for to accomplish? And so he continues, he says, And Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Now, um, Timothy is, if you guys are familiar with Paul and his missionary journeys, Timothy is Paul's protege. He found him at Lystra on one of his missionary journeys, and Paul refers to him here as brother. And then he refers to the Colossian church as saints, and faithful brothers in Christ. Now this word brother is Adelphoi in the Greek, and what it means is siblings, or brothers and sisters. <laughs> and um, we're going to revisit the idea, the concept of uh, all this family language that Paul is, is very liberally throwing around at the beginning of this letter to people he's never ever talked with or seen before. Um, and we're going to look at what it means to be in Christ in the coming weeks. Um, but I want to engage the verse at the very end before we consider the family language that he's using. Grace to you, Paul says, and peace from God our Father. Why? Why grace and peace from God? Um, we can't, and one of the habits that I have is I will read something in the Bible because it happens often and frequently, and I'll just pass over it. We can't pass this greeting like a normal everyday salutation because it's not normal at all. And although Paul begins all of his letters with some sort of variation of this, we should ask the question, why? Why grace and peace from God. <laughs> Why does he need to say this? Why is it so important that the Colossians, if they're thinking rationally about this, why is it so important that they understand this? And would it not be, if they understand the scope of, of God's righteousness, would it not be right for the Colossians to be shocked to some degree by what is being said here? How can Paul say that they're getting grace and peace from God? The reason I ask this is because in Colossians 3, which we'll get to in a few months, <laughs> um, says this. It says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. The wrath of God. Not a popular and common phrase that you'll hear in the modern church, especially in America. Um, yeah, but here's the problem. It's in this book. And it's not in this book just once. It, there's a lot of places where it's in this book. God's wrath and God's anger towards rebellion and sin are all over this book. And Paul says, not only is it coming, but Paul says in Romans 1 that in part, 
we already see it and we already experience it. Romans 1.18 says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who brought by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Now one day, uh, we will spend a ton of time unpacking exactly what that means. But the point I want to make here is, is very simple. We need to understand that grace and peace coming to us from God is an absurdity and ridiculous. Um, this suppression of the truth here is the baseline response of human nature to the reality of God, to the beauty and the worth and the glory of God. Every single being in the entire world and every human being has this instinctive response to God's reality. God reveals his truth to us in creation and in scripture, and the natural response of the human heart is, I don't want that. Thank you for the offer, God. I appreciate it. But rather than your glory, I would love to have your stuff, your things, your creation. Jeremiah 2 is probably about as clear as you're going to get as to what this exchange looks like, the nuts and bolts of this exchange. Um, and this applies not just to the people of Israel, but it applies to every human being on the planet. My people have, cre have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Think about the exchange here. What God is saying. He's saying that they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images, for things, for just stuff. They drank the fountain of God. They drank from it. And they spit it out and said to him effectively, I would rather scrape the ground and die than drink from this fountain again. <laughs> and this might sound severe, painting it in these terms. But here's the deal. If you don't understand, if you really don't understand the depth of the exchange that's happened at the center of our hearts and our rebellion against God by nature, there's no way, there's no way that we can fully appreciate the grace and the peace that we get from him. And that's why, and I can say this with confidence because this is true about me, we can read this line over and over and over again. Grace and peace to you from God. Grace and peace to you from God. And it has next to no effect on us. Now think of it. Think about what's happening here when God says grace and peace to you. Think about us, exhausted, pursuing the things of this world, defeated, and full of anger, really, and animosity and hostility, according to Romans 8, towards God. Scraping the ground, trying to carve out a cistern that will never, ever hold any water. And God, in his mercy, kneels down next to us, grabs our arms, looks at us in the eyes, and says, grace to you and peace to you. That's incredible. And that's what Paul is saying God can do. And we should really reflect on the fact that this is a miracle. This is not normal. This is not expected. This is unanticipated. 
in this line that Paul has in verse 2, there is a miracle. Grace and peace from God should not be a sentence humans should be able to say, but it is. And so why? This is the most important question we can ask, period. How exactly can God say this to people? And Colossians 1.20 speaks it very loudly by saying that Jesus Christ made peace by the blood of his cross. The peace that we so desperately need, the grace to let go of a broken cistern and be plunged headlong into the fountains of living water, into God, was purchased by blood on a cross. The peace we have is blood-bought peace. The grace we have is blood-bought grace, and not ordinary blood. This blood didn't just come from a man. It came from Christ Jesus. 1 Peter 1 says of Christ, You were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. There isn't anything more precious than this. This is why he uses words like silver and gold. He's trying to stretch our minds well beyond the highest level of preciousness that our plane of existence can offer materially into the arms of God. That's how precious this blood is. The most precious thing in the universe. The Son of God died to buy you and me grace and peace if we would have it. And now, in God's embrace, Paul can tell the Colossians, without any feeling that he's lying to them, that God has given you grace and peace. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. Now, I want to key in on one last element of this text as we close. Um, The words, God our Father. What does that mean? God our Father. Why all this family language, Paul, for people that you haven't met? We don't communicate that way with people that we haven't met. They get the title of acquaintances, maybe if we're feeling good that day, but they don't get brother, and they don't get father or um, (coughs) sister. So why this? It means that this blood is what the price was for our adoption into God's family. We become... God's son or God's daughter. We begin to embrace him as our treasure and not other things. We sever, because of this blood, the exchange that was made in our hearts. We fight it the rest of our lives, don't get me wrong, but it is severed at the moment that God's blood applies for our lives. So that's why Paul's so heavy-handed with his family language. He calls Timothy their brother. He calls the Colossian church, Adelphoi, my brothers and sisters in Christ. We are family. And this is how they became one. They were adopted into the family. Now listen to John describe the shocking beauty of this adoption. John does it like uh, no other uh, author in the Bible. And I'll, I want you just to understand, like, <laughs> to, the, to the authors of Scripture, they're not writing this and just saying, this will be nice for people to hear. They are astonished at this. That when they... When they feel God leading them during inscripturation to write something in the text, they're not writing it from a a place of muted affections. They are shocked and dumbfounded at what God is telling, the story that God's telling through them. And we need to look at Scripture through that lens. It is not a normal book. It is completely abnormal uh, and completely supernatural. 
This is what John says. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. So if your faith is in Christ and his precious blood on that cross, then you, my friends, you risen hope, are children of the living and eternal God. And the only affections that govern every interaction he has with you is grace and peace. Grace and peace. That's what Paul wants to do. That's why he's saturating them at the beginning of this letter with the reality that grace and peace is coming to them. We are God's children. We are God's kids. And we are his kids forever. That should be amazing to us. If the worship team wants to come back up again, um, we'll close with worship. If you have responded to Christ in faith, that means you are a recipient of the same exact, the same precise grace and peace that Paul is talking about. And we'll be doing communion over here on the left in just a second. Um, For those who have embraced Christ in faith, this bread and this juice symbolize his broken body and his shed blood. And when you take it, my, my plea to you is that you consider the cost. His precious blood, his precious blood, the most precious valued thing in all of existence is what we partake in. And let that stoke the furnaces of your affections for this great God and King who gave up the most valuable thing so that we would be redeemed from certain destruction and grafted into his family. Let's pray. Father God, I am so ridiculously grateful for the people who are here today, Father, and for um, the people who are serving in kids' ministry and for the kids that are back there. Um, Father, this is a blessing to me more than anybody else here. And I exalt your name in it. I thank you, Father, for this. But I pray right now, Lord, that the weight of what we've read here today in just two verses of Scripture would so profoundly come to bear on our souls that we would be convicted of the areas in our lives that we need to submit to you, Father, that we would be um, drawn into the parts of our lives that we need to experience deeper and more profound worship, Father, and, Lord, that we would recognize the cost that was paid for so that we could look you in the eyes one day. That's going to happen one day. We're going to see you as you are. And the reason we're going to see you as you are is because you could say grace to you and peace. Let that never be lost on us, Father. May that be an anchor for our souls no matter what we are going through, Father, that you have redeemed us from the curse. You have saved us from certain destruction because you loved us from before the ages even began. I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.